welcome to another episode of the Misadventures of an Inspired Woman podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Maisha Clearborn. Dr. Maisha is an integrative family physician, a master practitioner and trainer of NLP, hypnosis, and timeline therapy. She is the founder of the Mind Remapping Academy. With over 20 years experience, she helps her clients transform their lives by helping them master their mindset and communication while eliminating fear, self-doubt, and negative emotions that get in the way of their happiness, productivity, and peace of mind. A mind remapping and behavior transformation specialist, Dr. Maisha empowers her students and clients to understand the power of their unconscious thoughts and behaviors so that they can be in the driver's seat of their minds and create lives they truly design. Her own struggle with burnout is what originally inspired her to step outside the box and her trainings and programs now help women and men around the world find their passion, purpose, freedom, and peace of mind in all areas of life. Dr. Maisha is a graduate of Emory University, completing her medical degree at Morehouse School of Medicine and her family medicine residency at Florida Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Maisha. Thank you. Thank you so much, Misha, for having me on. It's, you know, it's just, um, I was very excited and, and because I love what you do. I love um, your platform and, and, and I've, I've followed you and we, you know, we've met on various platforms and Clubhouse. And so, you know, it's just a pleasure to be with another amazing sister sister doctor like yourself you know <laughs> yeah it's great I think so last year uh Marsha was doing the Thrive 2G yes <laughs> um and somebody couldn't make it for your session and she's like can you hop on this and I was like okay <laughs> yes yes it was and, and that was just and, and, and we ended up having an amazing conversation too yes yes yeah because yeah. I wasn't sure what to expect I was new to what she does and and how y'all usually mm-hmm. do it um mm-hmm. and what I really liked about you in that moment was that I think you you had planned to do it a particular way and then you just quickly mm-hmm. pivoted to do it a different way and I think it was a very powerful conversation and, and the content that came out of it, I think it was great. And I'm, I'm, pr- I'm really sure that a lot of people were helped and inspired by it. Yeah, I would hope so. You know, it's interesting because in the, in the practice of NLP and neurolinguistic programming, as we'll probably touch on a little bit later, you know, it's behavioral flexibility is the name of the game. You know, there's a, there's a whole principle around being flexible in our behavior. And I think that when we're able to do that, then we are no, we are no longer at the effect of the world. We're no longer of the effect of circumstances, right? Because we, at any time, we can pivot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like that. And then we were in a room together. I know y'all are like, are all your guests this season from Clubhouse? Kind of. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, man, that's where we make those connections, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like we just had that one time and then we were in a room uh, together. And so I, I think it was good to reconnect again. Because and I think that's the thing. It's in, in the world that we live in, sometimes when we connect with people, we don't reconnect again and we, we don't have that opportunity to sort of deepen that connection or explore it or to find out more. Right. Sometimes you just have this one great experience and then 
that's it. You just move on. And so um, I'm grateful, especially in the time that we're living. I'm grateful for the opportunity to reconnect with folks. Yes, me too. Thank you. Thank you so much. So the question I've been asking folks a lot lately is like, okay, here you are, you have all these degrees and you're Dr. Maisha and you do all these amazing things. Mm-hmm. But starting out, like, did little Maisha think that she would do anything like this? Was this like little Maisha's dream? Girl, no. <laughs> Well, this is, you know, even if you had asked me if I'd be doing this 10 years ago and, and I'd be like, oh no, I'd still be in clinical practice. Um, what I will say is I decided at the age of, well, I don't know what age I was, but it was the eighth grade is what I remember. Mm-hmm. So whatever age we are in eighth grade, we're 13, 14. Mm-hmm. I decided in the eighth grade that I would be, a, I would become a doctor. And, um, but it was not because of any like major experience that I had, it was really kind of random. I mean, not so random because my parents are doctors. My mom's a, a retired dentist and my dad's a retired OBGYN, OBGYN. So maybe I had like a little bit of influence, but um, they never were like, you're going to be a doctor. Uh, but I did I was doing this writing assignment and we had to write colleges. And I was looking through and, and was looking through Atlanta and I saw Emory University School of Medicine. And it was weird. It just called to me like, oh, this Emory School of Medicine sounds good. So I wrote and they wrote me back. And at that moment, I got it in my head. I was going to medical school. And in that moment, I thought I was going to Emory. But I, as it as it turns out, I went to Emory undergrad and then I chose HBCU for medical school. Um, I wanted that experience. I really wanted that experience. But yeah, no, I, I and, and so then I, I was like set on this, I'm going to be a doctor path, right? And and everything that I did from then on was I'm going to be a doctor. Now, when I got into medical school, when I got through medical school, I should say, and into residency, I realized something. This was not exactly what I thought it was going to be. Being what did you think it was going to be? Oh, you know, I thought I was going to get to spend time with patients and, and talk with them. And, and, you know, it was, I was just, I was going to be able to heal and help them. And now I did help them. It's not like I wasn't helping patients, but 15 minute appointments did not fit my style of healing and practice. Right. Mm. Because I was always more of a, I like to say I'm a self-proclaimed granola (laughs) <laughs> like really, you know, crunchy granola person, right? I, I was introduced to yoga in college. I was introduced to Reiki um, right out of college, became a Reiki master before I was in medical school. So I always say I was a healer before I was a doctor. Uh, and so these are things, you know, aromatherapy, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, all these things I started studying before I went to medical school. So as I w- went through medical school and I enjoyed medical school and graduate graduated at the top of my class because I just enjoyed it. But then when I got to residency... Wait, wait, pause. Said, stop. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Yes. No, no, no. We don't allow that to happen. <laughs> what you doing, you know, girl? What you, you know doing? what you just did. You know what you just did. So I graduated at the top of the class, but then, you know, wait, well, well, well. <laughs> you didn't graduate at the top of your kindergarten class. And shout out to anybody who's graduated at the top of their kindergarten class. I'm not trying to downplay your achievement. However... You don't just graduate at the top of, a, of, of of your class in medical school. Medical school is is 
from from what I understand and hear, because now I'll be hanging out with all these physicians, y'all. Um, it's pretty. It's intense. It's competitive. It's yeah. it's it can be. It can be difficult on your personhood, right? On your your yes. belief in yourself, on your in your confidence, mm-hmm. and and all these different things. Your relationships. It's it's very male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the nurse to graduate at the top of your class and just like glaze over it. Like no, no, no. Take <laughs> us through that. We want to know about that. You want to know about that? Okay. You want to know about <laughs> you know, that? So interesting. I have this conversation a lot, like with my clients, like, oh, are you just glazing over your accomplishments? And then here I go and do the same thing, right? Well, you know, the thing is, I I didn't start out that way, right? It's an interesting thing. I was a straight A high school student. And then I got to Emory and everybody was a straight A student. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of struggled through Emory. And, and, And I was a chem major initially until I got to organic chemistry. And I was like, nope. And so I became a psychology major. And inside of that, um, I, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about behavior, about learning. And I think that primed me for my, my, my medical school matriculation because, you know, my first year and I look, I wasn't like a straight A student at Emory. I graduated with barely a B, a B level GPA, like mm-hmm. a low three point something GPA. Uh, but I said to myself, this is where I'm going. I'm going to Morehouse School of Medicine. And I went to Morehouse and I said, you know, hey, I just want to let you know I'm applying and I plan to come here. So what is it that I need to do to get in? So I was, this was a shout out to Karen Alexander, who was admissions back then. And she sat down with me and she said, well, first of all, you might want to consider doing our summer program. So I did. And uh, did I did pretty well for for a person. You know, I don't I, I don't remember the grades, but I do remember them saying, wow, you know, you did really well for being a for a senior in college. I said, OK, well, I'm coming here next year. So let me know what I have to do. And, you know, whatever they said to do, I just did. And it ended up being that Morehouse was the only school I did the original application they call it an AMCAS application. I did the original application and I applied to probably about 20 schools. Mm-hmm. But when the secondary applications came, Morehouse was the only school that I applied to. And I said, okay, I'm coming. And I got in early admission. And so for me, it was a matter of um, mindset. Like, what is it that I need to do? Learning learning the structure of my, uh, my study schedule, like really learning how, how do I learn best? And, um, you know, many people were glued to class. What I learned about myself is that, um, if the class was interesting and engaging, I could be there, but if it wasn't, I'd be, my time would be better used at home reading. Uh And, um, and then I created study groups. I mean, I can't say that the, the, the way that I can't say that it was a singular effort. Like it, it took community, but I created the circumstance of community because I realized, well, this is the way I'm going to learn. And if I were to say how I, you know, my first year I was probably a C student, but towards the end of the year as I really learned how I learned and I trusted my own knowledge. I think that's really important as well. I think a lot of times we don't trust what we know. Um, I began to realize like I would be the first out of tests 
um, during the test period. And I wouldn't trust that. I'd be like, something's wrong. Like I need to go back and I need to look at this test. And, and then I would change my answers and get things wrong. And at some point I realized, no, you need to trust what you know. And when I started trusting, you know, the, having the structure that I put in place and trusting that I knew what I, I knew, then that's when I started to excel. And, and that really was the path for me. Um, and then, of course, clinical medicine, you know, I just loved being with people. I loved history taking. I loved learning my um, I was kind of a, I don't know, a teacher's pet. The, the, the attendings loved me because I loved learning. And, and I did well on tests, but it was only because I discovered my learning style. I discovered what worked for me, right? Oh. And that's, that's, that's really how it's been all my life, is really discovering what works for me. Like my path has never been a normal path. I didn't come out of, um, you know, I, I, I declared my residency program as well. But even in residency, I was studying traditional Chinese medicine and doing, you know, aromatherapy. And my mentors, my white male mentor was like, you're going to do something really different. Like, probably. (laughs) Yeah. So what is there anything that you can sort of identify or look to in your childhood or your teenage years that sort of... um, gave you that thing that even when you had the C average and the chem major wasn't working out it and you switched over to this thing, is there something you can point to that that gave you that thing to just sort of like keep going, refocus? Because to figure out, look, I teach college students and sometimes I'm like, I, I don't know what, what else to say. I feel like I'm giving you the blueprint for this and you're not following it or you're not even trying to discover, like you said, your learning style. Like that's that's a lot for a 20, 21, 22 year old to, to come to the conclusion and figure out and create. Like how? Mm. Is that just like an innate yeah. ability or... It's a it's a really good question. What I'll say about it is I think I had a motivation that probably was a little pathologic, if I were to be 100 percent honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a, a as a child survivor of domestic violence. And, um, you know, that shit rolls downhill. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I, me and my mom, we are really tight now. But, you know, we had some there was some challenges growing up between she and I. And um I think a lot of my motivation for figuring it out in college and figuring out in med school was not going home. Mm. It's like, you know, I can't, I, I, I don't, I can't go back home. Like, it's not that I couldn't, but it's like, there was no way mm-hmm. I was going back home. And so for me, there was an internal mechanism of motivation to figure it out. And, and then when I figured it out, you know, of course, over the years, I, as I did deep work and I kind of discovered this, then I've gone back to my mom and sort of my motivation comes from a different place now. Like I, my motivation has turned towards now what I can contribute to and what, what I'm called to. But yeah, in college and in medical school, it was like, oh no, like number one, I can't go back home. I won't go back home. And number two, I will not have, uh, I will not owe my mom from a, from a financial standpoint. I won't have anything being held over my head. So you better figure out how to do it and get the scholarships and get the money. Got to figure it out. And that was the dialogue inside of my head that had me win. You know, it was useful mm-hmm. as a youth. Yeah. Not for very long after that. Yeah. Cause pretty heavy dialogue. 
for that, I mean, for any age, but pretty heavy dialogue for that age, because although I think in the U.S. people are like, well, you're 18, you're an adult, just go figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. quite it. You still sort of need that that um, that safety net, so to speak. Right. Right. And you mm-hmm. were like, the, the safety net is not a healthy one and it's not one that that I want to be caught by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. And, and for me, it was it, it. The frame was, oh, well, you, you don't really have a safety net. It, it may look like you have a safety net. I don't know what that is, but it ain't no safety net. Right. right. <laughs> you know, like that's how it occurred for me. Right. And so I like that you said that. I think a lot of times things happen in our lives and we sort of have to like put on this tough shell and focus on what's ahead to get away from that thing or to not return to that thing. And and, and it could be a family of origin. It could be a re- an unhealthy relationship. It could be unhealthy friendship or even sometimes an unhealthy job situation. And you sort of have to forge ahead. But if we continue on with that armor, it it then no longer serves us. Right. So then how do we pivot to, like, yeah, (laughs) what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? So, well, (laughs) I will will tell you that it it took a, a series of trauma traumas you know and I will and and I, I can't distinguish like for me if I were to say I would say traumas with a little t but some people hear it and say traumas not so little right mm-hmm. but it took a series of events happening for me to sort of wake up to there was some deeper work that I needed to do so uh, I was I was depressed as a teenager I did I in retrospect I see that now um, <laughs> I think that in our family, it was um, what goes on behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. And for me, um, you said the how, like, how do we, how do we shift? And, and, you know, being a depressed teen, having, having, you know, an attempted suicide in my past, um, having experienced a, I think in college, as I look back, I was probably depressed all the way through college. Um, I started therapy in medical school. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting way that it happened. Um, I t- we took the Myers Briggs our first year, and uh, I tested INFJ. And the school counselor called me up to her um, office, and you know went over the results with me. And what she said to me was, um, "You have to be careful." Because you're at risk for depression mm. and for isolation inside of this environment. And when she said that, I lost it and I began to cry. And then she was like, what's going on? You know, like, do we need to talk? And that led to um, the beginning of therapy. And I went through, and, and even though, you know, probably about two years in, I was, I was, I had really, um, I would say there was a lot of progress. I had made a lot of progress emotionally from an expression standpoint. Even me and my mom had made some good progress because she came in and she did some sessions with me. Um, I kept going for the whole four years because I felt like, well, this is something that I need to um, help me to just maintain my mental health through medical school. 
Right. I recognized it. And I think that was the first time for me that I realized that um, there was something more than just the internal drive to succeed. Like there was, there was a, there was an emotional part of me and it still wasn't the end all be all because, you know, then I, I got, when I got into residency, I had a series of failed relationships. I got married to an alcoholic. Um, I, um, there were just a lot of things that one day I, I realized that I needed some, some, you know, deeper connection, spiritual connection, a community, and when I stopped doing it on my own, and then I then I think that's when I made the most progress. And then I ran into neurolinguistic programming after that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can actually help other people with this. Yeah. You know. So many good things in what you just shared. And thank you for, for sharing that with us. I know that's not um, always the, the, the easiest thing to share, even as you you've worked through your healing, it still is a trauma and it still, you know, can have that that bit of a sting to it. Um, regardless of how much progress we make. But I think I think even the, the idea of, of labeling things as trauma, a lot of things that people experience, they label them as quote unquote normal, or well, that's just what it was, right? And so I think having grown up in a household where there was domestic violence, your experience in some form of depression. Now your 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 relationship with your mom is 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 this sort of place of conflict. It's a lot to manage. It's a lot of emotions to manage. And I think particularly at a very young age to manage that, you know, your parents are supposed to take care of you and, and, and they're supposed right. to be safety there. So if you're managing all of that, that's just a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that's really good that you took that opportunity to sort of unpack that and deal with that. Realize that you couldn't you not being able to handle it on your own didn't mean that you know, you were weak or, or, or whatever the case might be. It, it actually made you stronger and actually put you on this path towards helping people even more, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's a really interesting thing to hear you speak that back to me um, because there is the mindset, there has been for a long time, I should say, there was the mindset for a long time that what happened just happened. And like, I felt like, well, my mom was the one who was getting beat, not me. So how is it a trauma for me? You know, like there was that piece of it. And then, and I, and I just really ignored the rest of that aspect of my childhood that I was impacted. And even like having married, you know, an alcoholic addict, like I, I just was like, oh, I made that choice. I, I knew what I was getting into and you know, I, over the years I've unpacked it and I'm still, I'm still peeling off layers, you know, and, but, but I think it was pivotal for me to recognize that, um, needing help was not a weakness. That was, that was, I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I ever recognized because in residency, I had another brush with suicidality and, for me, you know, I, um, that night, I remember that night very clearly, I, I picked up the phone and I called, and I called and I called, like I called like maybe five or six people. And then it was enough of, of a pause to be like, all right, just get through the night. Right. And then I went for help. And I just like that in and of itself, that asking for help from that point. And then going back to my mom and says, saying, you know, mom, I think that uh, I'm depressed and I may need to take medication. This was after I had thought and was already taking medication, but I didn't tell my mom that. And she was like, 
oh, we don't have depression in our family. Mm. You know, you could just, just, you know, you just be strong. That's what she's just be strong. And, and I really, at that moment saw, oh, this is the difference. This is the difference between, you know, my, the, I would say an old school mindset and the mindset that I was adopting. And I think that was the key to my healing, which is the key to all of the other things that I came in contact with afterwards, that that behavioral flexibility, that being willing to be inside a community. And it wasn't immediate, like how I'm in community now, it took a very long time because I'm an introvert and because I didn't trust folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, It took a very long time for me to um, open my heart to people, right? To really experience the love that I now experience fully. Yeah, the thing that just struck me about what you said with that conversation with your mom, I would imagine that she sort of probably was in that pattern of what's happening in the house is happening in the house because your mom is an educated woman. She's a dentist. She has all these things. But this thing is happening in our house and it it, it shall not be known outside these four walls. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And it's and I believe, too, it's a generational thing as well. You know, like our our parents' generation, and I don't, I don't know, you know, how old you are, but I'm assuming you're somewhere in my generation. Um, my our parents' generation really was like 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 that, and their generation. And my mom, we grew up in Alabama and Huntsville, so you know, in the South, when when I was growing up, and when my mom was one of the few very successful Black dentists with her own practice, she had to go through some things. So it really wasn't. I can't let them see you sweat. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's the stigma of mental health and depression and all that stuff in the black community. We never even talked about things like that. Right. Um, and, and so I think part of it was that and, and that fuel that fuel that what goes on behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. And it was very challenging to shed that. You know, it's been it has been very challenging mm-hmm. over the years to shed that. I still to this day, you know, it takes something for me when I when I when I struggle because, I mean, you know, we're human. And this pandemic, man, it, it it's it's hit some it's hit some 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 nerves for me mm-hmm. um, to even I find it to this day. I have the tools to pick up the phone. I do it. But it just it's something that I have to breathe through. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, yeah. okay, the phone still weighs a thousand pounds. It was constant work. It's constant work. It's that not it that it necessarily gets easier, but you, 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 you sort of know that this is what works and this is, this is what I have to do. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so you, I think your strength and your resilience to figure this out, even that strength in your vulnerability to say when I need help, to, to say when, right? Because here you are with these failed relationships. Here you are married to someone who is an alcoholic. And it's like, you had a decision to make. Like, do I live the rest of my life trying to cover up all these? Because you would have lived a life of just like constantly covering up a lot of things. Or mm-hmm. do I allow this to be a quote unquote failure and free myself? Right. Right. And, you know, what was was interesting, just, you know, as I think about my career, right, I went into integrative medicine out of residency. I, I, well, 
first of all, I never joined a, an official practice. So I came out of residency. I was I was very isolated in my career for a very long time as a result of a lot of these conversations, right? I just was like, I'm on the path. I could reach out for help when I needed it, but when I didn't need it, it was just Han Solo over here, right? So, you know, I graduated from residency. I did contract work. So I never attached myself mm. to a community. And then... I started my, I actually left the country for six months and practiced in New Zealand for six months. I went a, a whole 18 hours away. <laughs> you know? Um, and then I started my own practice in integrative medicine. So explain to us what, I, what does that mean to be practicing what does integrative that mean? medicine? Yeah. So integrative is like the marriage between the natural and the traditional. Um, so, for example, I use a lot of new food as medicine, nutritional uh, prescriptions, nutraceuticals, which are like herbals or uh, vitamin supplements um, for for the treatment or healing of people for the prevention of disease. Right. <laughs> However, I did go to medical school, so I know when to when to diagnose. I used to tell my patients, see, they would laugh at me. I would say, look, if you got appendicitis, I'm not going to give you no herbs. <laughs> right. If that thing got to come out. <laughs> you, <can tell> <laughs> you know, if you're having a heart attack, I'm not sending you no herbs. I'm sending you to the ER. So, you know, like, so they understood that I'm still a physician. And yet what I promote is let's use food. Let's use alternative modalities like acupuncture. That's how I got into coaching. That's how I got into hypnotherapy and NLP is how can I use the mind-body connection and food and the earth to heal before the disease gets as bad as it could? Or even um, if you have early stages, if you have disease to improve your quality of life to the fullest. So that's what I, when I started my private practice, that's what I focused on is that natural healing and combining that with my traditional background to know when it required a traditional approach. And so you flew out to New Zealand. <laughs> so, so that was, so I flew out to New Zealand to, before that, just to kind of like, you know, get my chops. How do I want to set up my practice? How do I, you know, what are some other ways that people practice outside of the U.S.? And then I came back and I was like, all right, I'm ready. And so, you know, once again, going against the grain, um, I hired a practice manager and I said, I want to do a cash-based practice because a colleague told me that's the best way to start when you're doing a, an alternative medicine practice like this. My practice manager said, oh, you can't do that. Mind you, I have had a lifetime of people telling me I can't do that. Mm. And I was like, okay, you're fired. <laughs> and then I did that, right? So I built a cash-based practice. Um, I started it in 2007. You know what happened in 2008, the market crash. What I did was in demand. Um, and I just, you know, I grew it. I grew it through the recession. It was, you know, I, I, what I did was I straddled doing contract work to pay the bills while I grew my practice, mm -hmm. you know? And when I, at future, you know, jumping sort of forward as I coach doctors sort of like over the last couple of years, that's what I've told them. It's like, you know, you don't have to quit a job and take on a $300,000 loan to start a practice. That's good. Not necessary. That's so you know? good that you're providing that information. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, what I was saying is that, you know, it's an interesting thing because as a as a holistic doctor, an integrative medicine doctor, starting my own practice, I was very isolated <laughs> because in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia, in 2007 and 2008, integrative medicine wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing, right? So people looked at me like this, you know, bohemian, granola crunchy, you know, young looking black female doctors over here starting this quack practice and, and my colleagues. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm just going to go do this over here by myself. And um, five years, six years in the practice, I started realizing that it wasn't my end point for my career. Not because I didn't like it, but because I felt like there was something more, something bigger for me to do. And when I started researching at the end, learning about physician burnout, and particularly in moms in medicine, because it was, you know, around 2014 that I became a mom. Yep, 2014. Mm-hmm. I started realizing the struggles of being a doctor, wearing all the hat doctors, the mom doctor, the spouse doctor, although I wasn't a spouse, I had was dating, the, you know, wearing all of the hats and being a doctor and having to put a face out there like you're like, you know, I got it together. I, <laughs> I got it together when I'm, you're like, I need some sleep. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm, tired. <laughs> I'm stressed out. My two-year-old just peed on the floor. <laughs> That's so real. It's all good. Yes. You know, like that. So um, I, when I started to transition, and I know you're, you might ask about this, but when I started to make my transition from clinical medicine into back into the physician community, it was an interesting phenomenon. I, I reintegrated myself. It was the first time that I allowed myself to be in community. And it was the first time that I allowed myself authentically to be in my community, like as me, like, you know, I'm saying what I'm saying. I said what I said. And I'm sticking you know. to it. And I'm sticking to it. You know what I'm saying? And that was very freeing. That was the, that was the beginning of some a, a, a huge tr- uh, transformation for me in my expression. Because I think when you are going against the grain in terms of practice, I think um, not to the degree of what you experienced, but I know when I was in graduate school uh, for my PhD, like we, you know, people had these research teams and I kind of had to cobble together my research experience because I didn't fit into any one research team. And even when I did, like what I was talking about and what I wanted to do, like nobody else wanted to do it and nobody else got it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you end up having this very solitary experience where everybody's working on teams and everybody's, you know, working out on these projects together. Mm -hmm. It's just you. There's really nobody for you to bounce ideas off of. Even when you do start talking, people are like, they don't, it's like you're talking a foreign language and they're like, no, that that doesn't make sense because we don't understand it. Therefore, what you're saying is not true. That's Mm -hmm. a really difficult thing to experience. So then to now come into it as a professional and say, I'm not backing down from this. This is who I am. If I'm going to be a part of your community, you're going to expect accept me and my language and my practice. Mm -hmm. And that's not an easy place to stand. So kudos to you for for doing that. Thank you. You know, what's so funny about it, though, (laughs) is that when I started speaking as I speak and being who I am in the physician community, it was like that was the magnet. 
I was like, oh, so people actually like who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's really what it was. Like, oh, people actually like who I am. And and I was going against the grain then too, because when I started physician coaching, people were, those doctors were like, what is coaching? What is coaching? I don't need no coach. Mm. You know, like again, going against the grain. I think that's and, and even now. I think that I was born to go. I really think I was born to go against the grain Mm -hmm. because even with this neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis, you know, I I, I'm educating people. And I and I think part of it, there's a part of me that really loves that. Mm -hmm. I love that aspect of, oh, here's something new and novel. You don't know about it. Let me teach you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. let me show you how magical it is. And yes, I'm very good at it. You know, like I really enjoy that aspect of it. Um, so tell us, tell us about your, your discovery of NLP and what is NLP? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so neurolinguistic programming, NLP and neurolinguistic programming is, uh, it is a, I call it a set of tools and techniques embedded in a methodology. It's really about understanding the unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you know this, I'm not telling you nothing you don't already know, but you know, like if you were to envision an iceberg, right? Let's say the iceberg of the Titanic, that the Titanic. That's the exact, there. exact graphic that I use. <laughs> Fuck. Yes, I have. Look, we, you know, we have that same graphic, girl. You yeah. know, we have that same graphic. Um, at the, 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 the top of the, the iceberg, you can see that is the conscious mind. Those are the things that you're aware of. Those are the decisions that you're making consciously. Those are the, you know, the, the things that, um, the, that you, you know, when you're walking and you're talking and you're, those are the, the things that you are doing and you're aware that you're doing your knowledge, your, um, figuring it out, you're remembering, your conscious remembering, all of that is conscious mind. Then you have like the part beneath the surface, like if you look beneath the surface of the water at any given time, you can see a little bit below the water, right? And that would be considered probably the subconscious mind. And then, and that's, you know, where some of your beliefs are, some of your unconscious thoughts are, some of your emotions are. But then there is a whole part of the iceberg that you cannot see. That's the part of the iceberg that sank the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And that is like your deeper values, your deeper fears. That's where the trauma gets buried. Uh, those are all of the unconscious programs that you have been, that have been installed over time, you know, from young childhood. And sometimes, you know, it's really passed down. We I talk about this epigenetics, you know, this and the intergenerational trauma. Some of that stuff is installed before you're born because it's passed down. So um, that is the, 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 you know, the distinction of conscious mind to unconscious mind and what the, what neuro-linguistic programming, which is quite frankly, derived out of hypnosis does is allow you to reintegrate and become connected with that unconscious mind and understand the programs that you run at the unconscious level, how to access them, how to shift and change those narratives so that you can be at the source in the driver's seat of your thoughts, feelings, emotions, and therefore your behavior and results. That's NLP <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> when you say, you know, the part that you can't see, that's what sank the Titanic. The part that we cannot see and we cannot access, that's the part that sinks a lot of us. Yeah. And it's the part that runs us and we don't even know it. Mm-hmm. 
You know, imagine we think we're going along. We are in control, but the unconscious mind is really in control. And if you're disconnected from that unconscious mind, then you're not making any of your decisions. Yeah. Right? You're not making choices. You're at the effect of life. And so when you do understand that you have an unconscious mind and you start to reintegrate and reconnect and trust that unconscious mind, then you do have a little bit more access to that thing that you cannot see. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have a little you have, you know, a lot more control over you, the thing that's running you. And that's what you help people with. That's what I help people with and in multiple capacities and, you know, people who want to start their own businesses and they have their limiting beliefs and their limiting decisions or they have their fears. People who, you know, uh, from a, from the standpoint of have like immediate fears, uh, sudden sudden fear of speaking or sudden fear of, of, of uh, I don't know, heights or flying or, you know, yeah, yeah, those yeah. types of phobias. I help people with that. Um, I, I help people who really are, don't, they feel, have a feeling of lostness and they don't know why. And I help them to reintegrate and discover what are those, those underlying conversations that have them feel lost. We uncover that. We unearth those things through the processes of neuro-linguistic programming and a technique called timeline therapy. And we eliminate those things at the root cause. So it, it brings that, that freedom, um, yeah, that freedom and that peace of mind. You know, I was doing a, I did a session with a, an attorney and I remember she called me and she was like, I, I just got to do something. I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so tired of being afraid and, and I, I just, I'm not sleeping. I'm not, you know, there's, she was, she was just go, t- telling me all of these, these various um, symptoms that she was having. And I, I know that, I know that I'm a good attorney, but I'm always worried about what other people think. And I, you know, like she was just, you know, uh, unearthing all of these things. And she said, you know, can you help me? So of course I said, yes, I can help you. Of course I can help you. So we we go to do this session, this time, this first timeline therapy session. And as I begin the, the, as I begin the uh, session, she sort of side-eyed me like, what is she doing? And what is she talking about? Because it is, it is a, it's a process that is difficult to um, explain. And, and when you experience it, it's not, it's not unlike anything that you've ever experienced before. But at the end of the, but the next session, she said, you know, I was skeptical at first. We let go of anger and sadness in the first uh, session. Mm-hmm. She's like, but you know what? Anything that would have triggered anger over the past week, I was so surprised that I didn't react the same way. As a matter of fact, when my husband was yelling at me, normally I just pop off at him. And I just found myself like laughing. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very powerful thing to be able to let it go. And a lot of people feel like, well, or a lot of people um, expect this to be a, a woo-woo type. Um, I've been hearing discipline. this woo-woo thing. It's like, it's not yeah. like an official term in the medical community. This is like, no lie. The third time this week, I've heard somebody say woo-woo to describe something that was not traditional medicine. <laughs> because that is what our community does. And it is, it is an official, not in the dictionary, medical <laughs> medical slang so (laughs) and so y'all will be like oh you know this it sounds so woo woo and I'm like well you know what 
I had a, uh, I did a, a podcast with a with a doc who was an energy worker, and I was like, you know what? We did a whole episode called "Embrace Your Woo." Embrace your woo. <laughs> and so when people be like, is that woo woo? Like, it might be a little woo woo, but it's also based in neuroscience. It's also based in neuroscience, right? But yeah, it's a little woo, and I'm a little woo. So you 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 can either reject the woo and not get results, or you can get you can get some of this woo and get some of the results in your life mm-hmm. as well. When mm-hmm. people are like, I'll take the woo, you know. <laughs> they're like it's not as woo as I thought yeah so funny so you've been able to utilize this or you were introduced to it as sort of like the next level of deep work that you did in your life Mm -hmm. um, to move forward and now you utilize it to help others so what's next for Dr. Maisha like what are what do you how have you so you're no longer doing like the full-time clinical practice correct so I correct. So what? Yeah, what what's so next? What, what can we look forward next? to? <laughs> oh my goodness! Okay, so this is great because um, you know, it's, it's something I've been discovering over the last few years as I transitioned out of clinical medicine. I sold my practice in 2017. You know, I was coaching mom docs. Then I was like, oh, I want to do more. So I was doing business coaching for a bit, and uh, and I was like, oh. I need to go back to my healing roots. So I started the school, the Mind Remapping Academy, which is the school that uh, teaches and trains others in NLP and hypnosis. What I'm committed to, I'm, I've always been a, a give, a, a teach a person how to fish type of girl, right? You can give a person a fish to eat for a day. You could teach a person to fish to eat for mm-hmm. a lifetime. And I've always been a teach a person to fish kind of, kind of, kind of lady. And um, I really want. Uh, the, the black community to have this these tools, right? When I trained in neurolinguistic programming, I was one in all of my class, one black person in all my class. When I trained to become a master practitioner, maybe 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 about five or six out of a hundred and something people, right? 130, 150. 50, 200 people. When I went to do my trainer's training, maybe about three of us. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of black trainers out there. There's not a lot of black female trainers who are actually using it to um, imbue this technology, pass this technology forward. And I feel like for people like you, for therapists, for doctors, for for attorneys, for people who wanna either use it for themselves or use it to help others in our community, we need this stuff. (laughs) We're talking about, we're having conversations about intergenerational trauma and the impact of of systemic um, racism, you know, white supremacy culture and black mental health, the importance of black mental health. Um, I just feel like having these tools will give us the next level in our development, releasing old bonds, uh, breaking old patterns at the unconscious level will give us the opportunity to, um, to just really shift for our children mm-hmm. for, you know, like I think about my son when I do this work. And as I teach my son to communicate, I think about 
what kind of difference he's going to make in the future, what kind of partner he's going to be for someone someday, what kind of father he may be some for someone or uncle or whatever that he might be for someone some, someday. That's what I think about. And I think about his friends and how he can impact them. That's what I think about. So I teach this work and I focus on, I teach all, um, you know, I teach all ethnicities, but I focus on, you know, people of color, black people and people of color for this work, because there's not a lot of people who are offering this work to us. Yeah, I think, you know, for our theme for this season is dope black women doing dope black women things. And I think I think part of being a dope black woman is to be able to go into spaces where where you are the only or one of the few and just like make a mark and leave a mark. But then you come back into the community and you 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 impact change and you affect change. And so um, I can't say enough how how grateful I am for individuals like yourself that you're not just about improving yourself and, you know, making yourself marketable, but you are about you know, uplifting and empowering the community. And I, I, I'm grateful to be able to, you know, share space with you. Oh, thank you. I'm just, I'm really grateful for this conversation and for you, you allowing me the platform to be able to express and to express so honestly, you know, it's something I've been really blessed with over the last year is being able to tell my story and, and tell it in a way that I've never told it before, you know, like really, let people know like the real of what I've dealt with. And that's sort of what I think has come to drive me and call me into the space of being. So, you know, people who want to do that deep work or they want to get that, that technology, the neurolinguistic um, programming technology, you know, I, I, I encourage our folk, you know, our men, our women, mm-hmm. <laughs> our teenagers, mm-hmm. you know, whoever to, to start thinking about this kind of work, because this mm-hmm. is, this is what's going to elevate us beyond where we've been. Yeah. Um, culture. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. So now I'm going to move to our lightning round. Oh. Um, <laughs> so the lightning round, you know, just fun questions, just fun questions. Don't think too heavily about them. So the first, are you ready? I should ask. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm <laughs> I love ready. your excitement. Sometimes people get scared when I say it's a lightning round. Uh, so what is your favorite color? Blue. (laughs) Um, What is your favorite dessert? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I think it depends on the mood, but mostly anything chocolate. Uh, There's this vegan chocolate raspberry mousse pie that I uh, love, 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 love. But then my second favorite is hummingbird cake. What's hummingbird cake? It's like a derivative of carrot cake. Um, it's like sort of a mix between carrot cake and spice cake. So it has some carrots in it, some bananas, some ginger, some nuts in there. It's really, really, really tasty. Oh, that sounds so interesting. Mm. Let's go look for some hummingbird cake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who is your celebrity crush? Ooh, what is the guy's name with the green eyes? And he played, oh, I can you, you, I should know this. I should know his name, but I can see his face. What was he in? He, he was in The Best Man. Not Terrence Howard. He was in the, I think he was in The Best Man. He was in, um, oh my God, how do I not? Ely, Michael Ely. Oh, I'm like, 
Ely must have been the best band, though. I think that's what threw me off. I'm like, Ely? Okay, yes. Oh, my bad. My bad. Look, I don't know what it was. But he was, in, was, he was in Think Like a Man. Uh, that's probably what you Oh, Think, think Like a Man. That's what it was. Think Like a Man. Yeah. yeah. When you said that's best band, I'm like, Terrence Howard. <laughs> no, not Terrence Howard. Not him. No, not Terrence not. Howard. <laughs> not Terrence Howard. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I don't dig him. Mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, what is your guilty pleasure? Ah, uh, dessert. <laughs> Pretty much dessert. <laughs> now I'm thinking about dessert. Um, I know, like, I'm thinking about what dessert I'm going to have tonight right now. <laughs> I'm thinking about some dessert. I don't even know what I'm going to get. I'm going to get some dessert, if not today, tomorrow. <laughs> Sometimes I go to this place called The Loving Hut in Atlanta. It's like down the street from me. Well, kind of like down the street. And, you know, okay, sidebar joke. Because uh, you're a New Yorker, right? I say down the street, and I mean 15 minutes away. Yeah, my okay, because I'm like, I'm like, don't tell people you live around the corner from that place. My, my cousin and my aunt who live in New York, every time I say around the corner and down the street, they're like, Maisha, can you walk to it? I'm like, no, I mean like driving around the corner. Like that means in Atlanta time, that means like 15 minutes away. <laughs> so It's not down the street. Sidebar. It's across <laughs> town. <laughs> That's hilarious. But there's this place, this little place, and they have these amazing vegan desserts. You would never know they're vegan, right? I often will go, they know me because mm-hmm. I come for the desserts. And I usually get two desserts. So on my guilty pleasure day, I will get two desserts and I will eat them back to back. No, I feel you, but that's why I don't keep sweets in my house because it would just exactly. be a problem. I'm going to get exactly. some dessert this weekend, though. Um <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Who plays Dr. Maisha in the story of her life? And what genre is it? Is it drama? Is it comedy? Is it a musical? Oh my gosh, that's a good one. Okay. <laughs> this is going to sound funny. I'm going to say Cree Summer. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Cree Summer plays Dr. Maisha. Yeah. And um, I'm going to say that it is a comedy drama okay a dramedy yeah 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 a dramedy mm-hmm. yes i see it i see it <laughs> i totally see it Cree summer in yes. the, in the in the dramedy totally see it yes i'm so boho like her yeah i love it well thank you so much for spending time with us thank you for sharing um so much of your adventures and misadventures um and really for sharing your strength with us i'm I'm hopeful um that it will inspire a lot of people so thank you so much well, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be here, for being connected with me and reconnecting. And by the way, um, you know you're coming on the podcast, the Remap Your yeah, Mind Okay, podcast. so tell people the name of your podcast and where to find you. So um, you can, if you want to find me for the neurolinguistic programming, you can just go to remapmymind.com. Remapmymind.com. And that'll take you to the Mind Remapping Academy. 
You can learn about personal breakthrough sessions. You can learn about our upcoming trainings. We have one coming up in April and also in the summer and June. Um, but the podcast is a new debuting podcast. Um, by the time this releases, maybe it'll be all the way out, but it's Remap Your Mind is what it's called. So you can see branding. Um, Remap Your Mind. And you would definitely have to be a part of the conversation because you are amazing. And I just so enjoyed this conversation. This is just, this is what it's all about. Like talking about those things that people don't really always talk about. Yeah. You know, those real, real conversations. I'm there. I'm there. Where can they find you on social media? Oh, yes. Everything is is uh, at Dr. Maisha. So um, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Maisha. If you're going to the clubhouse, I'm Dr. Maisha. If you uh, are on Facebook, LinkedIn, it's all and YouTube as well. I'm backslash Dr. Maisha. I am on Twitter. I don't do a lot on Twitter. Yeah. I do try to check it every now and then. So if you if you follow me on Twitter, I do post. But if you message me on Twitter, it might take a minute. So just Instagram me. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Maisha. Thank you, Dr. Keisha. <laughs> hey, inspired person. Thank you so much for joining me on another misadventure of an inspired woman. If in any way, any of the topics that were discussed in this episode triggered you, please reach out to a mental health professional. A good resource for this would be your health insurance, your company's EAP, or you can check out Therapy for Black Girls where you can see a listing of Black practitioners. I really enjoy talking to Dr. Maisha, and one word that comes to mind and is the title of this episode is Survivor. She definitely has survived a lot, and she continues to use her platform and her experience to help others. I was on her podcast back in February, I believe, and so if you check out episode 13 of the Remap Your Mind podcast, you'll get to hear yours truly. Um, on the other side of the microphone uh, with Dr. Maisha, where we discussed faith, purpose, and intentionality. So thank you again for listening. Be sure to hit like, subscribe to the podcast, share it with someone, follow me on Instagram at Dr. Keisha, that's D-R underscore K-E-I-S-H-A. And as always, be intentional.